God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Well, God bless and welcome to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcos Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the incredible Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how's it going? Uh, it's going. You know, it's Friday, so I don't know how incredible I'm feeling right now, but <laughs> at the end of a, a long and hectic week, but... Man, yeah. this is the downside of us having time on Friday afternoons to sit down and record, as we're both somewhat fried by the time we get to the mic. Yeah. Well... We are continuing our series and actually coming to the end of our season. Our season ends in just a little while here. Um, That doesn't mean we're done with the topic. When we come back after uh, a little bit of time off, we're going to dive right back into the next section of systematic theology. But before we go, we're going to spend a couple more weeks talking about the doctrine of Scripture. And and before we dive into today's topic, I want to make sure people understand that the Bible is first divine. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about the human, uh, well, if you will, the human nature of Scripture. That's a strange way to put it, but at least the human authors of Scripture. But first and foremost, this is God's Word. I'm going to quote a couple times from uh, John Calvin real quick. This is uh, in John Calvin's Institutes, the first book, chapter 8, Section 12, uh, it is not to be accounted of no consequence that from the first publication of Scripture, so many ages have uniformly concurred in yielding obedience to it, and that notwithstanding the many extraordinary attempts which Satan and the whole world have made to oppress and overthrow it, or completely efface it from the memory of men, it has flourished like the palm tree and continued invincible." And then a little later he says, it is, Its divine origin is more completely established by the fact that when all human wishes were against it, it advanced by its own energy. We are talking about the divine word of God. But the divine word of God was not dropped from heaven in golden tablets or accidentally knocked from God's, uh, from, from God's bedside table. Those are two large religions who would believe that's how we end up with the Bible. But the Bible is, in fact, written by human beings. Uh, Here is the theologian Richard Gaffin. He's quoting uh, at length from Abraham Kuyper. Uh, The actual composition of Scripture during the course of history involves the activity of a number of persons without the knowledge of a higher purpose and often without an awareness of the others involved. Uh, Gaffin will go so far as that the human authors of Scripture often don't even know they're writing Scripture at the time. Paul is writing letters. Uh, you know, you have prophets who are giving prophecies. They don't necessarily know they're writing the scripture, but God sure does. God is writing it, but human beings in their own experiences are writing these things down. 
Um, and, and so what we have is a divine word and a human word that Bavink would go so far as saying, Scripture, word, and fact, the religious and the historical, what is spoken by God and what is spoken by men are so woven together and intertwined that separation is impossible. We have, um, kind of like we have the divine and human natures in Christ, you have a divine and human author in Scripture, and you can't divorce the two. They go together. And so I say all of this so that people don't misunderstand what we're about to do, Lisa. We are not devaluing the divinity of Scripture, or at least the divine authorship of Scripture. Let's, let's make it more clear. Right. We are simply emphasizing for an episode some of the characteristics of the human authors themselves. Right. I, you know, and we cannot, and just to drive the point home with Scripture— that, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, right? That there, you know, we're, we're in no ways overlooking that. And then I go to 2 Peter chapter 1, where he says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, just to reiterate that point, those are our two anchor passages in terms of how we understand God breathing out his word through the agency of man. And so, through the agency of man takes us to what we're talking about today. Um, human authorship of the Bible, and more specifically, how the culture or the, um, the cultural background, perhaps, of the authors might have impacted Scripture and the way that we understand Scripture. What's the difference between when a Jew is writing part of Scripture or a Gentile is writing part of Scripture? What's the difference between a, a prophet who's in the court of the king writing Scripture and a prophet like Amos who's among the shepherds? Um, how do these different things change the way we receive Scripture? To what extent do we allow the culture of the writer to impact our interpretation? Um, next time we get together, we're going to talk about our own cultures, our own experiences, and how they might impact the interpretation of Scripture, or better yet, the application of Scripture. Um, but the, the human authors have, they have cultures themselves. They have backgrounds themselves. Um, Lisa, is this anything, I mean, did you get into this conversation when you were in seminary about the, the cultures of the human authors and how that might have impacted Scripture? You know, a, a little bit, and far, and far more than I had in my earlier years. Uh, you know, my early Christian years, I would say for much of my Christian life until about maybe, you know, two, so 2006 is when I went through a really pivotal um, change and even though I was reading the Bible, I got I got a lot more serious about understanding the Bible, not just what it says, but how it's put together. What is the cohesive story? What is the interconnectedness? And that's when, you know, I started thinking about or you know being exposed more to the cultural backdrop of Scripture. And I got to tell you, having that contrast from my earlier years, it does make a difference 
Um, and particularly when you're, and I think most notably, like when you're reading the prophets, you know, because here's how I use in my charismatic days. Now don't laugh y'all. Here's how I used to read the, the prophets, which unfortunately a lot of people do this. So you read the prophets and you're asking, and of course you, you know, you're wanting God to speak to you through his word. We, we want that. Um, but the interpretation would be contingent upon what I believe the God, what God was communicating to me about contemporary circumstances. Whereas the prophet was looking at it from his perspective, right? I mean, he, you know, we understand that the Holy Spirit was driving the, you know, that God was driving the prophet, but he, the prophet is also looking out he is in a particular cultural context and looking out and speaking first to that immediate circumstance while at the same time delivering a word from God that extended beyond that circumstance. Well, that's that's really important because this, again, leans us into the unified whole of Scripture by saying Scripture isn't first and foremost about your context as the reader it is predominantly about first god and then to the audience that's receiving the word and so we have to do a little bit of work when when paul is writing to the church in ephesus we have a little bit of work to do to understand the context that he's writing to and writing from uh, when when you have matthew who's writing a gospel from a Jewish perspective to an overwhelmingly Jewish audience, that's very different than when Luke is writing to Theophilus, who is most likely a Greek, and Luke himself most likely being a Gentile as well. These things change how we read the scriptures. They inform how we understand the points that are being made. Um, Lisa, is there something where there's like anything that jumps to mind? We think that's an implication that his context would have made abundantly clear, but we might just miss because we're divorced from that context. Sure. So I, you know, in my mind, I immediately go to John chapter 15, which was a passage of scripture I read for a long time. Um, right. And let me turn to it because I think I don't want to I don't want to mess it up. Like I said, I don't remember <laughs> so well anymore. So um, I had it and just give me one. OK, so Jesus says, I'm just going to read the first few verses. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So this whole language of of a vine and and the father being the vine dresser for us it's like oh that's cute you know and we get this picture of oh you know we we could picture a little vine and a vine dresser but what but Jesus had something specific in mind at which is referenced in Isaiah chapter five where the prophet 
is telling, you know, um, is telling, um, oh gosh, again, I had it marked. He's telling the, um, the house, of, you know, he's speaking to, to Israel and says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. So in the, in the prophets themselves, there's this, um, this correlation that um, Jesus is making between how, what the prophets said regarding who was, the, who was the vine dresser, who was the vineyard. So he's telling a group of people because remember Jesus is revealing the will of the father through himself. And so he's telling his audience that you understood Israel to be the vineyard, but guess what? That is in me. I am the vine. And that is something his audience would have understood more so than us picturing a plant. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think um, some of these scriptural allusions, this is why if you have a Bible with cross references in them, they can be very helpful because scholars have shown you how, you know, what these, some of these allusions are that don't leap from the page. They're not a quote, like, as the prophet said, quote, like Paul will do that a lot, um, Sometimes these illusions are just there, and if you don't know the context, the, the scriptural context, or the fact that he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience that would have just got it, you'll miss some of these things. Um, so that's really good stuff. I think another area where this is important and helpful, and this may get a little dicier, uh, because this, this, can, this can run off the rails if you're not careful. It's an understanding of cultural accommodation. Um, so let's, for example, go to, to Jesus's teachings on divorce. So uh, this is actually, you know, a good episode to have your Bible open and just kind of be bouncing back and forth, forth with us. But Jesus's teachings about divorce in Matthew chapter 19, um, they say, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus's response is, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, the law of God given in the Old Testament accommodates to the culture that the people are living in. If you're reading through Exodus, Leviticus, you come across some really jarring language about how slaves ought to be treated, for example. Um, when you read it in historical context and realize that it's actually moving in a much more, forgive the term, but a much more progressive way than the other cultures around, it makes a little more sense. And then you see a progressive revelation from the time of the law through Paul speaking directly to slaves and making them equal with masters, effectively undercutting the institution of slavery right there, uh, telling Philemon that he is supposed to be embracing Onesimus not as a slave but as a brother. Again, obliterating the institution of slavery through that. If you can see the progressive revelation through cultures, it actually keeps us from making some pretty horrifying application um, that, that has happened in history. I mean, the way that some of these passages have been used to, um, to propagate injustice, not just 
not just be on the sideline and allow for injustice, but actively propagate injustice is a lack of our understanding of the context of the scriptures themselves. And so there is a cultural accommodation that is sometimes there in scripture that if we're not aware of, is going to lead us into some pretty serious error. Right. And, you know, and on that topic of slavery, um, it's also important to understand that the Roman system of slavery was different than what we had known as American chattel slavery. Um, you know, first of all, it wasn't racial, it wasn't racially based. It was based I mean, Rome was a very, it was a, was a dominating power, um, of that time. And so as it, you know, conquered regions, um, a lot of slavery was, um, we, you know, were prisoners of war, but also the fact that slaves in that time were, they were accommodated freedoms that, um, you know, that uh, slaves under the American chattel slavery system did not have. And you're right. And throughout history, we, we have just a chalk. It's just even painful to think about it. We have a chalk full of evidence to show that, well, because slavery, you know, Paul never talked about you know, talked against slavery and Jesus never talked about slavery. So this kind of slavery was okay, but no, that it was a, it was a different system. That leads me to, um, a book that I read and loved It's called Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. He tells the story of, um, being with his, uh, being with his grandmother who was born a slave and lived until the Civil War on a plantation near Madison, Florida. So now I'm just going to I'm going to quote. My regular chore was to do all the reading for my grandmother. She could neither read nor write. Two or three times a week, I would read the Bible aloud to her. I was deeply impressed by the fact that she was most particular about the choice of Scripture. For instance, I might read many of the more devotional Psalms, some of Isaiah, the Gospels, again and again. But the Pauline epistles never, except at long intervals, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. My curiosity knew no bounds, but we did not question her about anything. When I was older, it was halfway through college, I chanced to be spending a few days at home near the end of summer vacation with a feeling of great temerity. I love the way, the respect that he has for grandma here, right? With a great feeling of temerity, I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read any of the Pauline letters. What she told me, I shall never forget. During the days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Old man McGee was so mean that he would never let a black minister preach to his slaves. Always the white minister used as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year, he used as a text, Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters as unto Christ. Then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. Think about that. She is so um, dehumanized by the improper abuse of scripture. And let's be clear. This is an improper abuse of scripture. That she says to God, there is a portion of your word I will not read if I gain my freedom. So when we talk about understanding the context of the writers, this is not just academic. Failing to understand can lead to profound 
abuses and really hurt the people of God in in devastating ways. Uh, this is just one example, but an example I found very, very powerful. Right. And, you know, and again, it's, you know, the, those kind of passages were used to support the institution of chattel slavery in America. It's not a question. I mean, it, it's... And, and the Bible has, beyond chattel slavery in the United States, the Bible has been used out of context, out of recognition, out of biblical context, within its own, within the, the text itself, within that larger passage, and outside of a proper understanding of historical context, the scriptures have been used uh, throughout history to prop up injustice against non-white people. We see that throughout Jim Crow, the scriptures are used left and right. Um, we see this in some uh, spousal abuse situations where people will use the scriptures to justify the abusing of women within marriages. Um, and that is because they fail to understand the context or they twist the meaning of the scriptures. And ordinarily, historical context can help ground us in saying, who was the author? Who are they writing to at the time? And how should that impact the way I read this text? Right. And even, I mean, you know, you t in, in on that topic, you know, um, is it Malachi 2 that's often, you know, quoted, God hates oh, divorce? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you have to look at the, the context of what Malachi is addressing. He's talking about abuse, the abuse that leads to divorce. So what God is really saying is, I hate, a, I hate abuse. Not, I mean, he hates divorce because it's the because the divorce is a byproduct of the abuse. So you're right. I mean, we can't, you know, and you even see that in 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 Matthew 19 and why even divorce was permissible and what hit the audience he's addressing, what they were doing with that. They're they're abusing that permissibility. Um, because of the cultural context, and that is what Jesus is speaking to, you know, in terms of the, the terms of divorce. Now, one of the things that can happen as we're, so there, there are real dangers to not reading the context, not knowing the authors, not knowing where they're coming from. There's real danger there. This is why, uh, just as, a, as another aside, this is why we need to be under the preaching of the word. And this is why as Presbyterians, we value the educated clergy. It's because you have pastors who have gone to school to learn these things so that they are right, able to rightly divide the word of truth. Um, you know, there, there are some people, I think, who are very skeptical of, um, they're skeptical of the seminary system because, you know, you hear the joke, that's where people go to lose their faith or that's where people go to become liberals. Um, no, seminary is where you go to learn the tools you need to be able to rightly exegete the scriptures and apply them to the to the everyday lives of people. Um, that's why we need a seminary system. That's why we need education of, of pastors. Um, but there can be a going too far. There can be a so getting bogged down in the context and in the history of the writers that we lose sight of the divine author. Um, this is something that I understand why Howard Thurman goes here. Let's stick with Howard Thurman for a second. Um, 
it's not a move I can make, although I am sympathetic to him and why he would make this move. But he effect- effectively gets to a place, and I was going to read like two chapters, or not two chapters, two pages of Howard Thurman, and then you made fun of me for that, Lisa, so I'm not going to read it. Uh, but I will summarize for us what we are going, what, what, what he says is Paul and Jesus are both Jewish, but Paul is also a Roman citizen. And so he operates from a place of security, whereas Jesus is constantly under threat. One of Howard Thurman's famous um, famous statements is that Jesus, um, that he ministers uh, with his back against the wall uh, to show that he has come to be, and, and we see this throughout the scriptures, right? That he is there among the poor and the oppressed and the outcast. That's where he tends to go. And so while he's able to hang out in the corridors of power, that's not, where he normally hangs out. He's normally over here on the side um, with the marginalized. He uses that as a foil against Paul and says Paul is much more comfortable in corridors of power uh, because he's a Roman citizen and because he's an educated Pharisee. And so what Thurman begins to do is he begins to show the difference. How is it that we can have access to Jesus as the disinherited? It's because he became disinherited with us Paul does not. And Thurman ends up divorcing the two. And and we don't hear in the rest of the book, you don't hear much more about Paul because of his more privileged context. I think this is an example of going too far, of recognizing where Paul is coming from. That's good. You want to know why he emphasizes some of the things he does, stuff like that. But to then pit Paul against Jesus... uh, that's a stretch, to say the least. Um, and, and But we see this a lot in some modern scholarship. It's the pitting of, of scriptures against one another because of historical context. What this does is it misses the divine author altogether. Right. Uh, oh, I absolutely agree. And it's a good thing that we are doing this audio only so to as to spare our audience from the cringe faces that I was making while you were explaining that but it's you know but you're right it's you know there's nothing new under the sun and you know we in you know I could counter that and look at the privilege that Paul lost because mm. of his conversion you know, where he says, you know, I count all things as loss. And not only does he count all things as loss, but he suffered loss because he was grabbed hold of by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this idea that, you know, that Paul was operating in privilege, whereas Jesus was not. Listen, Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Listen, fully divine. You don't get much more privilege than that. Right. And so and that really shows the humility of our Lord who condescended to us and took on flesh and subjected himself to all of this. So, yeah, you're right. We, we cannot do that pitting against each other. And the same, you know, the same argument has been made, uh, you know, Paul versus James. Well, they're addressing really two different. It's like two sides of the same coin. Um, and we have to, you know, ask the question, how does all of this work together? If we take, 
the you know the whole scope of scripture from genesis to revelation and what this is a and you know what we addressed in our last episode um what is god doing what is god telling us what is his, what are his plans what are his, what are his purposes um and then ask question when we see these kind of what looks like deviations we can ask the you know the question of how does this fit into the broader scope the the broader message of scripture you know i i think and this this gets us a little bit closer to next week as well again i understand how the historical moment that someone like howard thurman is living in and writing in how it might lead to those moves those exegetical moves i i get it historically we read from a context ourselves and that's what we'll talk about next week our context might challenge um you know our ability to read the scriptures the way they're presented by god but it's our theological context that can sometimes wreak havoc on us this is why martin luther rejected james i mean you bring up james and paul right martin luther hates hates the book of james because it's so focused on the works of the christian and he's saying that's he doesn't want anything to do with it he wants to throw it out of the bible he wants nothing to do with james that's a theological conviction that cannot allow for other theological convictions and theological truths to also be true at the same time and now we end up excising portions of scripture because of our context, not because of what the scriptures themselves are actually teaching. It, it becomes very difficult because we, when you start to peel this back, you realize there's a bunch of layers in the writing of scripture that are fascinating to see. This is how God raised up a person to now write this particular piece of scripture at this particular time. It, it's a wonderful study. Now there's also a whole other set of layers that we're going to look at next week there are many things that can get in the way and cause us to distort the scriptures because of our own present context. And that's uh, one of the biggest challenges that we have facing us in, in Bible interpretation and Bible application today. So before we get to, to next week, um, maybe one last, uh, one last piece of discussion for us here. To what extent does the context of Jesus his ethnicity, his um, his his uh, like his socioeconomic status, right? He took on flesh, but he took on the form of a servant. He didn't come as a king; he came as the child of a of a, of a stonemason, basically. Um, to what extent does his historic situation impact our reading of scripture? Do you think, Lisa? I mean, I'm not the first person to ask this question. You've heard this question asked before. Sure. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have to wrestle with is is tension. You know, there's a I think there's a this propensity in the Western mind to want to absolve all of the tension and all of the mystery. Jesus was 100 percent divine. He was 100 percent human. How does that work together? Well, there's a certain extent that we can, you know, we can look at the breadth of scripture. We can look at the different theories and say, aha, it's this. But there's a point where, you know, where we have to say, you know what? I, there, there's a place, there's a place of mystery where we have to say, you know what? It's, it's both. And I, I can't quite resolve this, but I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust that he is who he is. 
And so when it comes to his cultural context, um, you know, that he chose to come into the earth in very lowly circumstances, is that communicating a sociological emphasis for us? Or is it more of a theological emphasis? And especially in a world, and again, we're talking about cultural context, right? And we're talking about in a world where stations of life meant something, right? Like right now you have churches that are, you know, rich and poor together, right? People are different, um, you know, different economic situations can coincide together. But it was, there was more of a marked difference in that world. And particularly, and then when you get into the Jewish system, you know, in terms of who was the insider and who was the outsider. And so perhaps, and, and I think it's more important for us to first start with the theological questions about why, you know, what is Jesus doing in this particular cultural context that first is going to speak to us theologically before it does sociologically. And there is a danger of looking at those particular, you know, cultural, sociological um, perspective or, or, you know, that context of saying, well, because Jesus, you know, um, you know, Jesus lived among the poor, he elevated the priority of the poor. Was it that or was he saying that in his kingdom paradigm, there is, in, there is equal weight? There is room for those who have been marginalized by society. That's very different than putting an emphasis on the marginalization. Yeah. So again, audio podcast. And so you don't get me going, actually, yes, yes, it does emphasize the, but no, um, I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, the theological ahead of the anthropological or ahead of the sociological. But there are a couple of things that have happened historically that um, we also have to be careful of. For example, to forget that Jesus is Jewish is to deny his humanity. Mm-hmm. He is Jewish. Um, anybody out there who harbors any form of anti-Semitism is strictly anti-Christian. You cannot be a Christian and anti-Semitic at the same time because our Savior is Jewish. And we cannot divorce Jesus from his uh, incarnate context of being a Jewish person. And he had Uh, to be. And he had to be to fulfill what God was going to do through the Jewish people in bringing forth the Savior of the world. Um, That's really important and and we can um, we we can overemphasize. So just like we can um, overemphasize the, the sociological, we can also overemphasize the theological. That is possible, where we can say, "Well, look, Jesus is the Savior of all people. Uh, you know, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, what matters is that He came to save. His ethnicity doesn't really matter. Wrong. It absolutely does. If He's not Jewish." then he's not going to be the savior because this is how God has designed his plan of salvation through the nation of Israel. Um, there's, there's also a recognition that Jesus is, is, he comes as a form of servant and he lives during Roman occupied times. 
a lot of what Jesus teaches, and I didn't realize this until I was um, I was in Israel, and I was learning from uh, a professor Brian Widbin, who is at Alliance Theological Seminary in New York City. Uh, absolutely brilliant Old Testament scholar. Uh, I mean, to the point where. Uh, he has been at the ar- archaeological digs when certain things have been found. Like he's that kind of a firsthand knowledge of the the Old Testament and New Testament worlds. He does a wonderful job of showing how a lot of what Jesus teaches has profound political overtones to them. And when you learn the context of Jesus, it actually amplifies. It doesn't change but it amplifies what Jesus is teaching in the time. Um, when you realize that Jesus and Herod Antipas are born around the same time and they live close to each other and Jesus grows up knowing exactly who Herod is and Herod has no idea who this Jesus is, that actually informs some of Jesus' teachings about power. That city on a hill is an actual city that Herod actually built. And Jesus is saying, actually, that's not the city on the hill. The city on the hill is... That's political. That's a political statement. And so there is still, while we don't want to overemphasize to the point where all Jesus does is teach politics and social, social theory, that's, that's a false gospel. Um, we can't go there, but we also can't miss the context of Jesus. Um, it, it's, it's a delicate balance, but I think it's one we have to, to strike. And I think that in our tradition, perhaps we have discounted the context of Jesus too much. Okay. And on that note, I'm just going to lay out one of my little pet peeves. Okay. About what Jesus looked like. You know, there's a reason that especially in our in our tradition, we have emphasized the second commandment. Uh, I'm sorry, what is it? Yeah, the second commandment about not making images of God. Well, of course, I think it's I think it's acceptable. I know that there's some controversy in our circles about this. I think because Jesus was incarnate, because he was human, it's acceptable. Because he actually is the image of the, the invisible image of, God. Right. So I think it's acceptable to, you know, make him the God man that he was, right? But we but speaking of going too far, and I've noticed in this trajectory in the past few years about Jesus's skin color. And that, well, he wasn't white. He was a brown-skinned Jew. Okay, we know he was a Jew. He had to be Jewish. We just talked about that. In terms of the color of his skin, we don't know. We have no idea. And I get the impetus behind that is to push back on the whitewashing of the, you know, the European uh, center, the Eurocentric imagery of what, you know, how Jesus was made to look. But listen, we don't, two wrongs don't make a right, right? So yes, in that particular cultural context, we know that he most likely didn't have, you know, pale skin and blue eyes and flowy hair. Um, But at the same time, we don't know that he had brown skin in that region of the world even today. There's a mixture. Um, There's more, you have a range going, he could have had olive skin, He could have had darker skin. We don't know. And the point is that the more we focus on that, and especially if it's to say we need Jesus to look like us, what does that say about the people he doesn't look like? 
And I think that, and that is a, an area I think that we've gone too far. I think we, we should, it should suffice to say he was born in a region of the world where he likely did not look like the Euro, the, you know, the Eurocentric renderings of him. However, in this particular con cultural context, this is what the God man came to do and leave it at that. I, I agree. I, I mean, listen, there. The, uh, some of this came up because famously a uh, a news host was was doing her thing, and she said Jesus was white, and so was Santa, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the funnier things I've heard in a long time. Um, but uh, so I understand the the impetus to say Jesus did not come from Scandinavia the way that he shows up in some of our photos, um, or not photos, but paintings and, and pictures. But I do agree that an overemphasis on exact skin color gets away from our understanding of his humanity as well. Uh, if we limit his humanity to his skin color, then we're losing sight of all of who he is. I'm much more interested in his culture and in his ethnicity as Jewish than I am the hue of his skin. And, and we ought to be careful that we don't actually use the hue of his skin as a bludgeon. For generations, the hue of his skin was used as a bludgeon against non-white folks. We dare not do the same thing Amen. against against white folks. Like, we don't get to... I mean, so so I'm, I'm in total agree with, agreement with you there, Lisa. Um, so, uh, listen, this, this whole episode may have made folks uncomfortable. We probably you know, bothered some people by talking about the context of people by getting into the importance of their their uh, historical context because we tend to read the Bible as if it dropped straight from heaven and not coming through human authors. But the human authorship of the scripture actually adds to the beauty of the scripture. And we want to see that. We want to celebrate that. We want to embrace that. And so take a note. Who wrote this? Who are they writing to? What's happening at the time that they're writing? What's going on? What is Ephesus? What is Corinth? Who are the Persians? Who are the Babylonians? Uh, ask the questions. Do a little bit of look and talk to your pastor. Like, here's the thing. Some of my favorite emails as pastors, in fact, not some of my very favorite emails as pastors, are not the ones that are like, hey, I love what you did. They're the emails of, of congregants who are saying, hey, I don't get this about the Bible, or tell me more about this, or explain this to me. I love that. By far my favorite, and I'm pretty sure your pastor's the same way. That's their favorite email to get. So talk to your pastor. Uh, ask the questions about some of these background things. Maybe get a book on Bible backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Those are really helpful yes. um, because they help illuminate the Bible a little bit more clearly to you. Uh, you don't have to have it for God's word to be effective, but if you have access to it, why not learn more? Amen. So, and, um, and it also comes with that understanding the cultural customs of, you know, of those particular contexts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lisa, any last words for us before we jump off today? No, I just, you know, be in God's word, um, love it, um, open your heart. Remember, there's, you know, we're going to we're going to come across areas of scripture that are hard. Um, and especially for the one who is, you know, just learning the scriptures, like how to, you know, asking the questions, how does this all come together? Um, they're hard, but, you know, God is faithful. Um 
And since he is the author, and we know that he is good, that everything that has been written through the agency of man is beneficial for us. Amen. Well, that's it for today, everyone. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you next week for our season finale. And then we'll take a little bit of break and we'll be back uh, again in a few months. But next week, we'll be here. Season finale. Family discussion season three. Is this still season three? No it, wonder we need to take a break. My still goodness. Season three, yes. <laughs> it's been a long season, y'all. All right. We will see you next week. God bless. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's family discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next family discussion.